some of the reports of the Ministry of SOAS in, in Southern Africa, that'll be, that'll be great. Uh, it's at the East Hills uh, Baptist Church at 10 a.m. Requirements for deacons from 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 to 16 and this is part 6 in our series in 1 Timothy. So last week in our series we discussed the role and obligation of elders and, and pastors, those that God has called to lead his church. And we know that this, this role is, is, is indeed a noble task in which the qualifications are more weighted towards character than they are to giftedness and talent, uh, except the, the one gift that is essential, which is teaching, the ministry of teaching. And the role of elders was a crucial ministry in the early church and just as important today. And as we approach the halfway mark in our letter to Timothy, we, we come to another important role for the church that God has left us, and that is the, the ministry of deacons. Let's remember that the church, even though it might meet in, in buildings, the church is not a building. The church is the people. Wherever these people are and wherever they meet and whatever work they do, there you have the church. So this morning we will not follow verses, just, to, just so you don't get confused, we're not going to follow the verses sequentially as we normally do, but we'll jump from one verse to another within our text. Hopefully it will all make sense in the end and you're not you won't be confused. So let's recall that young Timothy was installed in the, the city of Ephesus. Quite a, a mega, a, it was a, a central part of the ancient world. It was a magnificent city in Ephesus. And he was put there as a pastor by the Apostle Paul. We have already dealt with some of the urgent issues that the Apostle Paul wanted Timothy to address at the church, now following on from those instructions that he gave him with regards to elders, he gives qualifications necessary for those who will serve as deacons. But before we get to that, let's jump a few verses and see the reason why he wrote this important letter in the first place. So the purpose of the letter in verses 14 to 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The Apostle knew that the, that the church was sent into the world to make a difference. That's the reason why Jesus said, I will build my church. And when the church was originally founded by Paul in that pagan centre, he was there for three years, it made a tremendous impact in the whole of the city. 
Not only in Ephesus, but also in the surrounding towns around Ephesus. They were powerfully impacted by the gospel. People were leaving idolatry. They were, they were leaving witchcraft. There were many extraordinary miracles when you read the book of Acts that were, that were happening and, and people were so convicted that they were selling their, they were not selling, they were burning their expensive books on witchcraft. But now that seems a long time ago because before the church was making an impact into the, into the world, now the world was having an impact in the church. And as we have already gleaned from the letter, there were beliefs and behaviours and attitudes that were very damaging. And this is because Satan, he doesn't rest. He attacks from outside through persecution, but he also attacks from within, causing dissension and division. So they needed to sort themselves out and and learn how to conduct themselves inside the church. This is very important if they were to have an impact once again to the world outside. So notice how he describes the church as God's household, God's family. And, And God's household is... There's everything. The definition of the household is, includes everything. The, the servants, the, the, the owner of the household, the family and everybody else that, that was supported or belonged to that household, including the slaves. And he does not simply say the church of God, but rather the church of the living God. That's very important because the church is the place where the living God dwells and is at work. It is unfortunate that much of traditional religion has become cold and institutionalised. I visited in my, in my trip to Europe, I visited a lot of cathedrals that were filled with tourists. But there were very few worshippers. Empty, magnificent buildings, ancient buildings, but cold and dark and sad. The structure was there, but the soul was gone. But we can also get used to routine Christianity here. We don't need to look too far. We can fall into uh, into this by simply going through the motions where we honour God with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. Very easy to say things, but your hearts are somewhere else. The world should sense that the living God is here, and this is His family, this is His household. In my travels, I also saw many ancient places that were magnificent uh, you know, structures were once there and, uh, and the, these remnants of once magnificent buildings and colosseums and, and, and temples are all scattered about. Some of them have been 
dug up and they've sort of been put together as, as close as they think uh, to the ancient world uh, when, it, when it was there. And these span in historical locations from Turkey to Greece. These are the Roman ruins, these are the, the Greek ruins. And one of these was at the site of the once great wonder of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Artemis is the equivalent of Diana to the Romans. And it, it was, this, this temple was magnificent. It was a humongous structure. And it was, in, in fact, one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. And it was a huge structure and there were pillars everywhere which supported the roof structure. So these pillars are supposed to hold something up. Now when they put these pillars up, they just simply say, this is where the pillar was, but there's no, there's no roof. It's just simply a pillar standing up. Today, at the very site of the ancient temple of Artemis, they, once a magnificent structure, there was just one solitary pillar standing up. There it is. And what was it holding up? There's a bird nest with a stalk at the top of it. There it is. So it's over-engineering, right? God does have a sense of humour with his creation. And there it was. That's all that remains, apart from the foundation. That's all that's standing up from the ancient temple of Artemis. The world doesn't want the church to be the pillar of truth. They accuse us of being stodgy and old-fashioned and, you know, being stuck in the old ways. But the world needs the church to be the pillar of truth. They keep telling us that there is no absolute truth, that there is only my truth and your truth. We live in a confused world. It is getting more confused all the time. We cannot even tell what a woman is or a man anymore. It needs a definition that takes weeks to come up with. And you say, Paul, you bring this up all the time. Why? Because this is the lowest that civilization can sink to, okay? No other time in civilization has there been a confusion between what is a man and what is a woman. And yet here we are. church needs to re remind the world who it is and where the truth is, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This means that the church is not to follow the patterns and fashions of the world. We are to be counter-cultural. We are not a club, we are not a charity, organization or a child care and counseling center. Yes, we can do all those things and more as part of our outreach into diverse programs that we want to run to, to reach people. Yes, but that is not our primary calling. 
The church is called to tell the truth, to support the truth, to live by the truth, to tell the truth in a world which is saturated with confusion and error. And not only that, not only is it the the pillar of the truth, it is the foundation of truth. Those pillars that we saw before, or the one pillar that we saw, has to sit on something firm, otherwise this whole structure is going to collapse. It'll start sinking, it'll start swaying, and then eventually it will collapse. let's, Let's just figure out that, and, and remind ourselves that in Ephesus, they already had the writings of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. These were the greatest philosophers that man had known up to that point, and even today they keep quoting them. But for Paul, they were not the foundation of truth. The church was. And that is quite a responsibility. Yet how is it then that we have so much biblical illiteracy in the church? Why? Because people don't know their Bible. Or if they do, they ignore it or they reinterpret it. Oh, there's another interpretation to that. One reason is that it is not being taught in a useful and compelling way from the pulpit. Also, many Christians think they already know it all. They already they went to Sunday school. They know the Bible. They are content with the the milky stuff, the milk. But they don't want to move on to the meat. Why? I think it's laziness. If if you are to be, if the church is to be, and you are part of the church, the foundation of the truth, you need to know the truth and live by it. It's a simple concept. But it's hard work to know the truth and to believe it and to stake your life upon it. And let me tell you, it's really hard to teach those who don't want to be taught. Even in our denomination when we're arguing about the whole thing of homosexuality and what we're going to do about it, It's interesting that they don't want to quote the Bible because they know exactly what the Bible says, but we just want to put the truth aside. Are you kidding me? Without the Scriptures, the church is nothing. It's a club. You can join, you can leave, you can do whatever. You can turn up when you want. Even worse is when you know the truth and you don't want to live by what you have been taught. So this is the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. It's directed to the church then, that this is the the way the household of God is to behave, and to the church today. That's why we have it. So now let's move into the office of deacons. We're going to look at verses 8 to 10, and then jump to verses 12 and 13, and then come back to verse 11. You'll understand. In the book of Acts, 
we, we read how the apostles were fulfilling the role of elders in the church at Jerusalem, the early church. The church was growing. They were providing the spiritual leadership and the teaching for the church. It wasn't just growing, the church was exploding in size. Many people came. And, and everything was going fine, but a problem arose between the Greeks and the Jewish believers. The Greek widows were, were being overlooked. And then there was a discussion and arguments and complaints about discrimination. And something had to be done. So rather than spend less time in the ministry of the word and prayer, they delegated this work to another seven godly men. In Acts chapter 6 verse 2 we read, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. The word for wait is the Greek word diakoneo, from which we get our word for deacon, which means to, to serve, to wait on tables. That's what the word means for deacons. And it's the word that we use today. So this initial pattern, initial incident, this initial problem created a position, a need, a role to be fulfilled for other churches that were planted. And so they they continued to, to this pattern. When they established new churches, there were elders and there were deacons that were going to be leading the church. The deacons would come alongside the elders to serve the church in more practical and physical ways while the elders and the pastors gave their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So as we see here, there are eight qualifications that are given for the office of, of deacons. These are character traits. Even though they are less than the Requirements for elders, there were 16 for the elders, there's 8 for the deacons. They are still important and some of them are are virtually the same. The verse 8 we read, worthy of respect. Another word is dignified. A deacon should have a, a a, a serious character, a seriousness of purpose about them. Those they serve will sense that they are concerned for them and so they can be trusted and respected, worthy of respect. Sincere. Sincere means they are not to be double-tongued, a forked tongue. You tell one thing to another, one person and you tell something else to another. Especially needed when it comes to disagreements in the fellowship. Because in the end, I know we're trying to please everybody But like I said last week, that is impossible. Sincere means that there will be straightforward, honest speaking people who tell the truth to one person that will tell the same truth to the next person. The truth doesn't change. They will not be indulging in much wine, verse 8. Similar to the instruction to elders, 
While it doesn't forgive the drinking of wine, it is clear that deacons are not to be drunks or alcoholics. A bit hard to respect somebody who's always drunk. Not pursuing dishonest gain, verse 8. Since the deacon is involved in handling church finances, they have to be trusted with material things as well. The way that they handle their business dealings and investments at home, they have a double responsibility, a triple responsibility when it comes to handling issues with the church finances. So they had to be an example to the rest of the church. And in verse 9, it says they need to hold the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Even though a deacon might also have the gift of teaching, that is not their primary role. Having said that, a deacon must be a person of conviction with the central truths of the Christian faith. And which brings me to the point of the whole nature of belief. The nature, the very nature of belief is that we all have to deal with doubts from time to time. It, it is having your questioning and having doubts is actually how we actually arrive at the truth and have our faith tested. But having doubts cannot be your full-time occupation. You need to arrive at a conviction, at a truth. And, and, but there is, a, there is a setting, there is an appropriate setting where we, can, where we need to deal with, with doubts. Once you are in a leadership position, you cannot air your doubts on social media and in front of the whole church. This would have the effect of discouraging others who might be wavering in their faith. What we do want to share is our convictions. Let's work on your doubts. Let's talk about it. But there is a setting. There is a place. The German poet Wolfgang von Goethe once said, Give me the benefit of your convictions, if you have any, but keep your doubts to yourself, for I have enough of my own. Deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Clear conscience, that means you're going to be living according to the truths that you hold. You're not going to be a hypocrite. What you say with your lips is going to, how, it's going to be how you live with your life. Verse 9, they must first be tested. The testing means that they have an observed track record before they are put into office. You don't put someone into office because they said, unless you make me a deacon, I'm going to leave the church. Fine, go. We don't need you as a leader. We don't need you as a deacon. You don't put someone into office and then see if they're going to be trustworthy or not. Test them first, then recognize them. Guess what? We have a precedent. We have Joseph. You know, he, he was a slave, he was a servant. How many years in prison? And then he served in the palace. Then we have Moses, 40 years of testing. 40 years in the palace and 40 years in the desert before 
the last 40 years of leadership, that we have Joshua, his understudy. We have David. And even Jesus was tested for 30 years as a carpenter and then in the desert before he began his ministry. Testing is fine. Some of you have done well with the things you were asked to do. And because you've done well with the things you've been asked to do, you've proven yourself. You were given more things to do because you have proven yourself. And, and there's actually a parable about that, right? But please don't see it, if you're given more tasks to do, if you're proven faithful on these things, you'll be given more. Is that, is that, don't see it as a punishment, but as a privilege to serve the church of Jesus Christ. To excel. And yes, I know, you can't do it all. That's why we have a church, we can share the leadership. But when you are being asked to, to take something else on, go and pray about it. Faithful to his wife, verse 12. We jump to verse 12. That is, of course, if he happens to be married. Moral failures have a tendency to keep the tabloids busy, right? They, they, they look for moral failures in politicians, in Hollywood, everywhere. Now, that keeps the tabloids busy, but it's, moral failures are a disaster for the church for the witness of the church, both internally and in the world. For this reason, deacons are to be men of moral purity who only have eyes for their wives. And it says, verse 12, that they are to manage his children and household well. As is the case with elders that we spoke about last week, the home is an important proving and testing ground for the deacon. Parental control of the children is important, just as important as it is for deacons as it is for elders. If they fail there, don't increase their responsibility to the wider church. And now in verse 11, we jump back a, back a little bit, we come to verse 11. In the same way, he says, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So right in the middle of a discussion about deacons sandwich in between is this instruction on the conduct of women. Paul inserts this verse about women before he resumes his discussion on deacons. So this has caused uh, some confusion as to who exactly is he talking about. Is he referring to deacons' wives or to women who are deacons or deaconesses who might be married? Who, who is he talking about? Now, there were women in the early church who were appointed as deacons. It is evident that while the 
the office of elder was restricted to men, as we spoke last week. Women could be appointed to fulfill this role in the diaconate because the deacon's function is different to the function of elders, primarily because of the teaching. For example, in the New Testament, we have Phoebe, of whom Paul says in Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sincrea. I ask you to, if you don't know where Sincrea was, Sincrea was the port of, of Corinth, so it was very close to Corinth. I, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including, including me. That's a, it's a high, a high rap that the Apostle Paul gives to Phoebe. Now, in any case, whether they are deacons or married to deacons or elders or someone else, the instruction that is given here is, is relevant. It remains relevant. So what, what are they are to be? Let's look at it. They are to be worthy of respect. She will not gain respect because she is a deacon. You know how we do that? You know, they aspire to be a deacon and then, then they appoint and say, oh, now I've got respect. No, you will be appointed to the position because you are respected. They are known and have a reputation for being responsible and serious about their task. Not a malicious talker. In other words, slanderers. The word literally for malicious talker is a devil. The devil is a slanderer. So we could say they cannot be she-devils. They cannot go from house to house gossiping private information. They must control their tongue. If they are the wife of a deacon, they cannot use the information that her husband might share in privacy or has been discussed within the the church board and take it home and then, oh, guess what I found out? I have heard too many stories of the damage that has been done to the church through gossip and slander. In this regard, this goes for all of us. Please don't use your private matters for prayer as an excuse to spread gossip. That's bad. We can find all sorts of different ways to dress up juicy bits. Oh, so-and-so is having a problem with their husband, but I just raise it as a spiritual issue, as a matter of a prayer, and so on and so forth. It goes. And we can dress all this stuff up, all this gossip in spiritual language so it sounds spiritual. But the Apostle Paul calls it what it is, malicious talkers. Temperate. Temperate. It refers to someone who does not live by their emotions. Up one day, down the next, bouncing from wall to wall. They live by the obedience to God's word. Note that 
women leaders as well as men are required to be temperate, to have this quality, to, to handle pressure. If she is swayed by her emotions and feelings, then she can explode at any moment. Oh, don't like the match. It's going to explode. A woman needs to be able to discern truth from error if she is able to serve effectively. Trustworthy in everything. It doesn't say trustworthy in most things. Trustworthy in everything. If you tell her something in confidence, she will keep it. There is a consistency in her life. Irrespective of where she's at, you give her a task, she will go and do it. You can trust her. And now with verse 13, we come to the rewards. Verse 13. And, and this applies to all of, the, all of the, the things that have been put there, to elders, to deacons, and now he gives this, this statement. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And this goes to everybody who serves within the church. A person who humbles themselves and serves faithfully as a deacon or elder or any other position will be rewarded. Even if the church doesn't notice, God notices. He knows of your service. And at the end of the day, whether it's something in private or whether it's in public, that is what really matters. He is the one that ultimately rewards you for your service. And if you are a faithful servant, you can stand before the Lord knowing that you are doing the Lord's will. That is what he has called you to do. Be it something in public, be it something in private, be it something big, be it something small. He wants you to be obedient. And obedience brings blessing. Obedience brings rewards. If you are being criticised unjustly, praise the Lord. You, the Lord will reward you. If you suffer unjustly because of his name, rejoice. You will be rewarded. The Lord notices. If you're a faithful servant, you can stand before the Lord knowing that you are doing his will. There is a quiet confidence that you have, that you understand that whatever you're going through is nothing compared to what the Lord has gone through. And that has to give us an assurance for those of us who are called to serve the Lord in this world. And we come to verse 16, which is a doxology. The, the, the word Doxology comes from the, the word for doxa. Doxa in Greek means glory. So this is, this is the way that this chapter uh, ends. After everything that he, the instruction is given, halfway through the letter, in fact, at the end of chapter 3, Paul pauses 
He's, after everything he has given, some strong words, yes, but he pauses and then gives praise to God. And, and this final verse of this section and chapter is, is a short hymn of praise. And when you read the word mystery, it's not something that, that you don't uh, understand or it's secret. No, in, in, when the Bible talks about a mystery, it is something that was once concealed, but it is now revealed through revelation from God. We understand it. We know it. The world might not understand it. The word might be blind to it, but we do. We do see it. To those who reject the gospel, it is still a mystery. As they continue to speculate about who Jesus was and is and what he's done, you know, is it truth or is it baloney? We know it's truth. Because no one can come to know God by human reason alone. It is a revelation from God who opens our eyes to the truth of who he is. Perhaps this was a hymn that the early church sung which depicts Jesus' life from lowly birth to the glorious ascension. Perhaps the Apostle Paul put these words together for this letter. Or maybe he borrowed from someone else. It was part of a tradition. And, 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 but the words are beautiful. They're, they're full of meaning, presented in, in six parts, which go through different stages of Christ's life. And one helpful way to look at it is, it's, it's in the six parts of Christ's life. And so it goes, the incarnation, he appeared in the flesh. His resurrection was vindicated by the Spirit. Christ's appearances were seen by the angels. The gospel, he was preached amongst the nations. Christ's followers was believed in the world, as you and I. And his ascension, he was taken up in glory. There's that word glory. The same Christ that the angels worship is the same one that we serve and worship today. What a privilege. What an amazing privilege. The central truth to which the church bears witness to the world, God's, God's household, the pillar and foundation of the truth gives glory to the one who came to save us. What a privilege that we can sing to him, pray to him and tell others about him. Never lose sight of who Jesus is and what he has done for you and me. And this very Jesus that we will praise for eternity, we have a chance to praise and serve now in his church to the world. Amen.